Pints with Jack, Season 4, Episode 98. After Hours with Patty Callahan. Welcome, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where David, Andrew, and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. Earlier in the season, we read Lewis's work about Screwtape, as well as a chronicle of this season, The Silver Chair. Since then, we've been rounding off the season with After Hours episodes, interviewing different guests and Lewis scholars. Next week, we'll be bringing this season to a close with our season finale. But today, I am talking with a returning guest to the show, Patty Callahan. And for those of you who are new to the show, Patty Callahan is a New York Times bestselling author of 16 novels, including Becoming Mrs. Lewis, which she was on this podcast to talk about before. So we will link that interview in the show notes if you want to check that out. She is a recipient of the Harper Lee Award for Alabama's Distinguished Writer of the Year. She is a podcast host, speaker, many more things, but most importantly, a three-time guest of the Pints with Jack podcast. Patty, welcome. Is there anybody except maybe Andrew Lazo who's been a three-time guest? No. Yeah. No. no? Two is two is the most. Um, uh, Diana Glyer was on twice. Um, Dr. Poe was just a two-part interview. Um, I, I interviewed with him for three hours on his two books, oh, and we, wow. we split it up into two. But no, there's never been someone. I bet we could do that. I bet we could. We won't. <laughs> She's like, let me quickly make hours. that clear right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, we won't. I'll clear my schedule. <laughs> I know, right? Thank you so much for having me again. Thank oh, you. Oh, you bet. And to get out of the way right up front so people know this, so what she is coming on here today is on October 19th. Remember that. I got that right, right? October 19th. Big Beautiful. Day. Big, Big day, day, guys. Her latest book, Once Upon a Wardrobe, is coming out. Woohoo! That's a big one. I'm so excited. And we didn't realize it when we chose the publishing date. I mean, I don't have anything to do, honestly, with the publishing date. The publishing house does. But The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe came out on October 16th of 1950. So it is coming out the same week as The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe did 71 years ago. Oh my goodness. Divine providence. Isn't that crazy? Yes. And I think it's going to have just as much success as that one did. Oh. (laughs) We're we're, going to try to top it actually. (laughs) Okay. Whatever you say, Matt. I'm with you. Well, you were one of our first guests, by the way. Um, I was thinking back to that. I was listening to you do the intro and thinking, look at Matt so polished and awesome, <laughs> you know, because, and you were at the beginning too, but it was such a new endeavor mm-hmm. and who knew it would become what it's become. And I have loved watching it. When you just said episode 98, I was grinning ear to ear. <laughs> I think I've probably listened to 96 of them, right? <laughs> I don't even know which two I've missed. So I'm so proud of what y'all have done. And it's just such an amazing, it, it not only speaks to to y'all and what you've done, but also to the enduring interest in Lewis's work. We've been incredibly grateful. So I appreciate you saying that. It's just been a blessing. And we're always shocked that people want to continue listening. Um, but we just enjoy doing it. And I guess they want to continue listening. But I was, I was. Well, you dive into subjects so well. You don't skim over the top. You guys do a great job. I love watching, listening to it, watching. It. Lewis makes it easy, right? <laughs> they come for Lewis. <laughs> um, right. I was laughing though because David puts, you know, that he interviewed you for becoming Mrs. Lewis in season two, and then I interviewed you for the podcast that was coming out about it. And I was thinking to myself when I read that, I was like, I thought I interviewed Patty for becoming Mrs. Lewis, but then it dawned on me, I didn't. But I fanboyed about the book for 30 minutes before we actually got into what I was supposed to interview you on. Because I remember talking so much about becoming Mrs. Lewis leading up to it. And I was like, We did. Uh-huh. We did. So now I get to repeat that because this book, this is actually the first I've mentioned it to you because I just read it in the last, uh, w- this past weekend, but it was absolutely incredible. Like just genuinely oh, fantastic. The, the overall, I'm not going to give anything away because I'd rather just chat about some stuff in here and, and, and unpack your desires, but the overall themes, 
that, I, that at least that I got from it hit me hard. The beautiful story between Megs and her brother. Yes. And well, then also I really liked the love story uh, between yeah, Patrick. That's what I was like. I can't remember his name right now. That was, I'm, yeah, I'm a Patrick. sucker for, I'm a sucker for a love story to be hundred percent honest. I have a deep romantic side of me. So that just, Aww. I love that. I was, I actually got a little bit emotional at the end of the book. I'm like, this is just incredible. So I'm very honored and excited to dive in. I was going to say thank you so much. I knew I had sent it to you. And when you didn't say anything, it's like, wow, maybe he just didn't like it. <laughs> so I'm glad that you're admitting on air that you did. So, uh, when I awesome. Actually, when I sent the email this morning, I had a sentence in there and I go, no, I'm going to save the reaction for real time, live, in person. I actually That's deleted awesome. the sentence of the book was fantastic because I wanted to do it right here. Thank you. So for the quote of the week, I took this from the book and I hope this isn't giving too much away, but I thought this was a really powerful book. And if it is, tell me. <laughs> Maybe Narnia began when Mr. Lewis sat quietly and paid attention to his heart's voice. Maybe we are born with our own stories and we must decide how to tell those stories with our own life. Or could it all be that our stories come from one larger story? Maybe Narnia began before Mr. Lewis was even born in Belfast, Ireland. Maybe Mr. Lewis's tale already existed in the bright light where every story, legend, and myth is born. Is that giving too much away? Mm, no. And I love that that is the quote that you pulled out of the whole book. You reading that out loud, I just got, my eyes just filled with tears. That's... Um, that's one of the few times as a writer where you understand that what you're writing is not yours. Mm -hmm. That what you are writing is something larger in its best moments. And I love that that's the quote you pulled. Well, it's, it's when I go through it, I, I, when I was reading the book, I was genuinely reading it not as a person about to have this conversation with you, but as someone that was really trying to take the story in. And when I came to that, it's almost like I snapped out and I was like, this, it hit me first of all. And then I was like, this is, this is the one I want to do. It was so blatantly obvious to me that this was the one I want to do. The quote of the week was, there's only one other one that I, I semi considered, but I was just, that's what hit me because it, it connects with Lewis's life story. It connects with all of our stories. It connects with getting in touch with your heart's desire, the larger story. There's just so much in this with myth, imagination, and I loved it. And so I thought that summed it up as best as I could for this. So I want to tell you a story yes. about that quote. I was working on the book for a while and I hadn't decided where I was going to end or where I was going. And we won't give any spoilers, but I was at a friend's house and I had staying with a friend in Atlanta and I had gone for a walk to get, find some coffee. And I was walking back and all of that, that you just read started coming to me because I was thinking about the book and I stopped and I dictated that into my phone. Wow. That, that you just read, Ella. So that's crazy that of all the lines <laughs> you picked, I remember exactly where I was when, when I wrote that. And it was, it, it was before much of the book was written. So I knew that's what it was about. What I loved about that was, and this will be kind of skipping a little bit ahead, but that's the beauty of these interviews is you just kind of talk around and see how it flows. But when I came into this, I actually didn't know what to expect because it's a new book and it's not like I had someone tell me what this was going to be about. You have the title, you create your preconceived expectations of once upon a wardrobe. And then as you read the first pages, you're like, all right, this is the way the book's going to go. When it started getting into, I wasn't actually as much expecting the the incredible history of Lewis's life. And, and then I was wondering if it was going to be the myth. And it had both of these two strands that were unbelievable of Lewis's life and how that that leads to this Narnia book, but then also Narnia being a part of this larger story. There's like a theological, but then there was his life side of it. And uh, just when that came together, every piece of the puzzle in my mind came together with that exact paragraph. I was like, everything was building to this moment. And that's what kept me really hooked to it and is I was just, I knew things were building and building and building. And you're like, all right, this is going to, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And I'm like, bam, there it is. I'm so glad. I'm so glad because 
I journeyed with that book for a long while and it was hard for me to decide how to tell it. Mm-hmm. For those of you listening, it's about a little boy who's eight years old who is ill and he asks his sister who is a math and physics genius at Oxford to track down C.S. Lewis and ask him, where did Narnia come from? And the year is 1950, which is the year the book came out. So it's new. There's not a whole Narnia seven series chronicles. There's no, it's just this new book on the scene. And that's all I had, Matt. That's all I had. And I knew that I wanted to answer that question. Mm. And so um, I had to live with how to tell that for a long while before I could figure out how to use the story to do exactly all those things you just described. And I wish everybody could have seen you with your hand motions, running alongside each other, <laughs> like doing this, doing that. Well, there, was, there was so much in it because I had just yeah. finished, um, actually just to, the, I mentioned it briefly earlier of, of interviewing um, Dr. Poe and on his books, which are very, very in-depth detailed of Lewis's life in up to 18 and then like 18 to, yeah, I don't know when he cuts it off, but let's say 26, 27, 28, somewhere around there. Uh, and so he's got these segments and it was interesting having read that and then how you beautifully weaved so many of the life, le- the lessons I had learned from that book into this book in an incredible narrative, engaging form that captivated Thank me you. because sometimes like a deeply academic book like Dr. Pose, which is incredible. Not everyone will necessarily pick that up where if you have this yes. narrative story where you still worked in so much of that and then how it impacted. So that was actually the part I wasn't expecting and was really pleasantly surprised with. Well, we talked about this, you and I did, when we talked about Mrs. Lewis, which is why fictionalize these things, mm-hmm. right? Like why fictionalize some of these facts or stories that are so well-known, right? Lewis's mother died when he was nine. We know this. If we know much about Lewis at all, you don't have to be an in-depth scholar to know some of these facts. Mm -hmm. But facts and story are not the same thing. And they don't hit us in the same way. And they don't psychologically affect us in the same way. And so, as you know, in the book, I I didn't want Lewis, Lewis wrote an autobiography, Mm -hmm. right? We can read that. Other people have written biographies. We can read that. But how would an eight-year-old boy see that? Mm -hmm. If you're telling him this story and he's putting himself in that place, then it's a totally different Thing. It's not logic. It's not saying, oh, we can see Lewis's grief hidden in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe because he's lost his mother, but you can show it with an eight-year-old boy realizing it. Mm-hmm. And that was the hard part because there are so many unbelievably wonderful books about his life. Poe, I haven't read Poe's second one, but I did read his first one. And You know, David Downing wrote um, Into the Wardrobe, which is such a fantastic. I have not read that one yet. Oh, it's so good. Okay. I think David just interviewed him about that. Oh, did he? But I haven't haven't listened to it yet. (laughs) So it is about all seven Narnia. I mean, it's about the Chronicles of Narnia. It's very scholarly. It's very studious, but very interesting. But still, there is a big difference between someone who will pick up, well, let me read a book with an appendix versus let me read a novel. And I wanted it to unfold like a fairy tale almost. I mean, it did. A fairy tale that left me in tears at the end. In in the power of how you do this, it's, it's just anecdotal stories of how it reaches such a diverse audience. I believe I'd mentioned the first time we'd interviewed my buddy's girlfriend, now wife, as of a couple of weeks ago, had read Becoming Mrs. Lewis. And when I'd mentioned that I chatted with you, she just, that's one of her favorite books of all time. And that's not an exaggeration. Oh, okay. Then I'm at another buddy's wedding like six months ago and his fiance, so a different one, 
is is just all of a sudden becoming Mrs. Lewis came up. Um, I didn't mention that I had chatted with you. Now she knew I did a CS Lewis podcast, but um, it was one of her her favorite books as well. And I'm like, and these are individuals that they actually hadn't read much other Lewis, and so oh, wow. it reaches just such I a different that. audience. It's it's fantastic. And I think we're all meant to reach different audiences, right? David, Dr. David Downing and Dr. Crystal Downing, they reach an audience, right? Dr. Crystal Hurd, she reaches another one. Max McLean, he reaches another mm-hmm. one on the stage. Andrew Lazo reaches another one with his teaching, his in-depth. He can pull a quote out of nothing. <laughs> No, tell me about it. He can also oh correct. God. He can also correct a misquote. He also can correct. Yes, he can. Yes, he can. So I think, and you're doing it with a podcast, and that is the wonder of Lewis is not only that he can tell stories in these multifaceted ways, but that we can tell stories about his stories in all these multifaceted ways. It's incredible. Well, going back a little bit to the beginning here, you and I, I'm actually a little bit curious, so I want to ask you a bit of where the inspiration for this and when you got this. But first, I'm a little bit curious on a technical perspective. Where were you in the process when you and I chatted? I think it was probably May or June of 2020 when I ran into you. And you had mentioned this book to me. You said, I couldn't say it to anyone. I didn't tell anyone. Um, You didn't even tell me. (laughs) I don't know if I told David. I bet you did. I might have. I don't know. Um, okay. That is a good question. I think I told you you could. Okay. I think I said. Um, so I'm, I'm curious. At the time, you told me eight-year-old terminal dying in, in, wants to know where this book came from. Was that – were you pretty far along in that process or was this the early stages? It would have been – It was probably mid-stage. Okay. So I started the book before – the lockdown of March of 2020. Um, I was in well into it, but it was very rough. I hadn't figured out how it would end. I hadn't, I hadn't decided on the story structure that you yeah. read now. I'm trying not to give spoilers. So I know I'm actually having and, a real hard time when I talk with the same thing. I know, I know. Like, <laughs> like, the, um, the, uh, the structure that you're reading it, which is, which is, you know, that, Meg hears it, tells her brother, and then he imagines it. Like that structure was still a bit muddy for me when I saw you, but I had just sold it to HarperCollins when I saw you. So I was so excited. But I started it in probably November or December of 2019 and was planning on spending a long time working on it. And then the lockdown happened. And my book, Surviving Savannah, which is a historical fiction that came out in March of 21, was already finished, was in production. And the book tour was canceled. And I sat down and was like, what now? What now? And this book was this still point in a world burning down, Hmm. right? While everything was going crazy around us and nobody knew what was happening, I could tap back to this book every day in March, April, May, June, July, August, while the world was locked down and we didn't know what was happening. And that's when I ran into you. Um, Sounded a lot like George. ah, With stories and writing when the world is falling apart or his own personal life and... Sounds like you did the same thing. That was my touchstone. Mm -hmm. And we were talking a bit off air about Cal Newport's book, Deep Work, and how if you're going to get deep work done, there needs to be this protected space for us to get that work done. And COVID was terrible, still is terrible, and the lockdown was terrible. And at the same time, it provided this space that I would never have had otherwise. Mm. This book probably would have taken me another year or maybe even two to finish. But because of the lockdown, I was, when I saw you, I was, I was deep into it, trying to finish it. Wow. Well, at least something good 
I always like hearing, I always know when, when people tell good things coming out, I, you can always sense they feel kind of bad because it was such a bad circumstance, but I love yes. stories of goodness coming out of badness and just celebrating those. Um, I think that's fantastic. Well, it's the light in the dark, right? We yes. don't have to deny that it no. was a dark and terrible time and still is in many ways, but that doesn't mean there weren't moments of light and goodness. And if we can't make meaning out of or try to find the light in, in the darkness, it's we're done, mm-hmm. right? We're done. So. <laughs> I love it. And so, where did the where did the original inspiration come from? Oh, it's so meta. I'm trying to find the origin. <laughs> so meta. I love story. it. Story. <laughs> I'm trying to find the origin story for a book about an origin story. <laughs> um, <laughs> right? Great way to phrase that. <laughs> Does it really have an origin? I don't, I don't know. That's my point. I can point to a couple different things. One is, but I cannot point to an exact moment. Like Lewis does say when he was 17, he had an image of a fawn with an umbrella carrying packages in a snowy woods, mm-hmm. right? He, he had that visual image. Of course, many, many, many other things you know, fed into the, into eventually into the lion, the witch and the wardrobe. But for once upon a wardrobe, it began a little bit when I was writing Becoming Mrs. Lewis. And I saw all these breadcrumbs of Lewis's life that I saw in the lion, the witch and the wardrobe, but I hadn't really heard anybody talk about. And they were moments in his life that were so obviously to me, like beaming out of, of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that I kept thinking about that. And I've always been interested in origin stories. We have a Facebook Live show called Friends in Fiction, and it's the question I always end up asking other authors every week. Talk to me about the origins. And they think they know And then they go back a little more or a little more. They say, oh, but when I was in second grade, somebody said, and and it's just this never ending proof that you don't really know the origins of a story. But it started with those breadcrumbs. It started with my interest in all origin stories. And I just started to imagine how I would work that. And then George showed up and then Meg showed up and then... And I don't want it to sound like these things just happened because it was very deliberate brainstorming and thinking and writing. But I knew I wanted to tell a story about the origin of the story while also showing that there's this ineffable quality to stories that we can't explain. Even if you are, like my Megs is in the book, even if you are a math and physics genius who thinks you can find the theory of everything, that doesn't mean you can explain where a story comes from. And I love how that came through in the in the actual book itself. I don't want to say any more because I was about to say something near the end, so we'll, we'll we'll keep that part there. But that's such a that's such a listeners. That's a really beautiful theme that's weaved throughout it. Is is that exact thing? Well, Lewis talks a lot about that. I struggle a lot with that. You know, I used to be a nurse and you work in the stock market. Like we have these or had these jobs that require great amounts of logic. And, and, and yet the, this either, or doesn't do anybody any good, right? Logic or imagination, right? Mystery or science. If we can get to an and both with those things, I think that's part of what I was trying to show in this story. Well, in probably the biggest way in my life that's come up is exactly like you said, we all want answers. I'm the type of person where whenever I'm struggling spiritually, I look for a book that will give me a mental model that I can apply to the situation in particularly to be able to get myself hopefully out of the rut or the circumstances that I find myself in or into a better spot. And the thing about that is it's me trying to figure out how I get to a better place, which is kind of not what spiritual journey is about. Of course, there is that part of attempting to be better people, but that's more of a byproduct. It was only when I read Lewis 
And I realized the mystery of divinization that he talked about more, more or less in part four of mere Christianity, that divine life. And when we receive that, Christ forms within us. And I'm like, but what's the five-step plan? This just sounds like if I open myself up for Christ, <laughs> stuff just starts happening in me. And this doesn't, this doesn't fit. I need a list. <laughs> I need a I list. I need to check off my list. Yes. Yeah, so. <laughs> well, and it, that makes me laugh because it's in the book. But there's, um, there's what we want, Matt. That, and I read it too behind me on that shelf is, you know, a thousand books about how to do things better mm-hmm. right you know we talked about cal newport well if we, atomic habits if we do atomic <laughs> habits or um you know the seven steps to being a better human yeah. i have no idea but it's all boils down to what this one thing that is completely impossible and that is certainty mm-hmm. right that is certainty there the, the search for that kind of certainty is going to fail every time because there is no such thing. Have you ever heard that story of Mother Teresa? When, um, so I, I, the sisters had told us this because I'd spent a month there. So they kind of had talked with the, the, oh, wow. the people. And one of the sisters told a story of how a volunteer had come to Mother Teresa and said, uh, she asked, what could I pray for you for? And the individual said, you know, I'm just really struggling with one thing in life. And I'd just love some clarity with it. And she goes, I won't pray for that because that's the last thing you're holding on to. And I always think of that when I pray for clarity. And I think of Lewis when he says, I think it was Lewis that says, like the best prayer to pray is not that your 2021 or now we're getting closer to 2022 will be like a good year. Pray that you have the virtues to get through whatever comes, good or bad. So don't pray for clarity. Don't necessarily pray for resolution. Just pray for the virtues to handle whatever comes. So those two things really stick in my mind constantly. Now, sticking in my mind and internalizing them are two very different things. Uh, so I yep. still tend to focus on the clarity. But but I think we write about, sometimes write about what we're struggling with. You know, there's that great roomy poem about living into the questions. And I think as authors, sometimes that's what we're doing is living into the questions through a story. Mm-hmm. And the questions George has and the questions Meg's has are questions we all have, right? Where does it come from? Is it real? Uh Is what's more important, logic or imagination? Uh Can we blend them? Are they exclusionary? And I don't, I am definitely not here to provide answers but whenever I have questions like that, they're best addressed in a story because for the most part, stories are wiser than I am. Mm-hmm. Even the ones I write are wiser than I am. Mm. That's well said. And I like that you brought that back. So I was, I was, I was, we, we went on a little tangent. I'm like, well, <laughs> well done bringing that back to George and the questions and the answers. I was like, man, she's doing my job for me. That was great. <laughs> oh, I didn't mean that even. I was just, I just, we were, we were about to head down a theological rabbit hole and we're never coming back from it. <laughs> well, the way I was about to do it was saying, listeners, if you think we just went on a tangent, these are the types of things, the book, the questions it's asking. And so yeah. if you, if you find this fascinating, you definitely need to read the book. Uh, one other kind of origin question is, as you're writing this now that you're done, so as you were writing it, now that you're finished, what is a desire that you have for a reader to get out of this? Like a takeaway, like what would be a beautiful thing if someone said to you, I got this from it and be like, oh, that's exactly what I wanted. I don't think I have an idea of what I want readers to get out of it, to be a hundred percent honest. Yeah. I mean, I could make some stuff up, if you want to, <laughs> but I think, I mean, I lie for a living, so I could make some stuff up, but I <laughs> I what I want readers to get out of it is whatever is the most important for them to get out of it. And my favorite thing is when I'm at an event or at a speaking gig and or I get an email or a letter and somebody says, my favorite thing about this book was the theme of X. I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. I meant to do that. Absolutely. I gave a lot of thought to that theme. Um, Because stories 
can be mirrors to our, the best stories can be mirrors to the worst of ourselves and the best of ourselves. So for example, with Becoming Mrs. Lewis, and I might get them for Once Upon a Wardrobe, but for, for Becoming Mrs. Lewis, um, sometimes I get enraged letters about Joy Davidman not being who they want her to be well, or who they thought she would be or a wife who is worthy of C.S. Lewis. Because as you know, she made choices that maybe some others of us might not have made in her pain and in her life. And I never write back and say, well, that, have you ever thought that stories are a mirror? (laughs) (laughs) And You you ever heard of the term projection? (laughs) Projection. But I think that I want people to get out of Once Upon a Wardrobe what is most meaningful them to them. But for me, what is the most meaningful can be entirely summarized in the quote that you read mm. when we started. Well, I'll be one of those people that tells you what was most meaningful to me was... Um, Tell me. G.K. Chesterton always says that having a sense of wonder is one of the most mm. beautiful ways. I think gratitude and wonder were the two biggest words that he emphasized and uh i feel like personally in the stage of season of life that i'm in sometimes work can keep me from i get really caught up in the day-to-day data logic rationale almost like megs and reading the the journey of george and the beauty of the way and when they went to the castle and I, I won't say anymore. I'll just leave it at that because I don't want to give too much away, but the way that he had this. I loved that so much. Oh, well, I loved writing that so much. It was incredible yeah. in, in that scene and the whole way unpacked. And then honestly, everything after that continuing was just this beautiful wonder and intentionality with life. That's probably what ended up leading me to be moved to tears. It was a scene, by the way, when they got back and the parents were there waiting. And I'll just leave yeah. it there. That'll trigger enough for you. Yeah. That's when I got emotional. Um, and it just made me, it left me with that, honestly, a a longing and a yearning to get back to something that I feel like I've, uh, swung on the pendulum a little bit too far towards the logic and ration and a little bit too far away from imagination. I haven't read many fiction books and I used to read more of those. I haven't had that creative side of me. And so it just really brought me back to that. And then I would also say the beautiful, um, Again, I'm really struggling with what to say, what not to say, but the love in the book, I'll leave it really vague, made okay. me yearn for the the beauty of um, particularly the way Megs was treated by the guy. I'll keep it vague like that, yeah. but like wanting to be that type of person for someone, I thought that was really beautiful yes. as well. So there's just a lot of beauty Thank in it. You. So it touched, it struck a chord with me. Thank you. I love, I think the word longing and I know... Um, Lewis has a particular word for it that I can't pronounce that begins with an S. Oh, that senzuk or something? Thank you. I can't senzuk. really. I'm probably saying no. it wrong, but. I know. I know I'm saying it wrong. I, Andrew will tell us if we're saying it wrong. <laughs> but um, I think it's one of the most beautiful words in the English language, longing. Mm-hmm. There's so much wrapped up in that word. And it's such a vulnerable word. Mm-hmm to admit to longing or to feel it. I just think that anything that can bring that up in us is a good thing. It kind of feels like you're admitting a little bit to dissatisfaction with your current life. Like we're all supposed to project life is perfect and everything is great and we're filled with joy. And it's like, you know, right now, not as much. And this struck a longing that I wished I was more like that. Yes, but that is like, that is nothing but a journey forward. I don't feel like saying I'm longing means I'm dissatisfied, but it is admitting that there's something more I'm trying to get to. Mm-hmm. We might have to cut this because I'm thinking out loud, <laughs> but yes, I don't think it's just, what is it? What is longing? And people smarter than us have, have defined it. But I think it is a beautiful word. And if any story can bring that up in you, I think it's, I think it's meaningful. Well, I think a beautiful way of saying it is from a Christian perspective. So what I had kind of mentioned of it, the world would tell you if you have that longing, that means you're missing something and there's like a dissatisfaction. But Christianity would tell you, no, you can, 
Yeah. No matter what you have on this earth, you will always have that longing because as Lewis said, we were made for another place. And so there, yeah. obviously there are things we can do on earth here today to help somewhat satisfy that, but we'll never be able to quench that thirst. And honestly, that's a blessing and a gift because if we could quench that thirst, we would probably not have that spiritual journey, that natural tug that that pulls us towards well, the source of that longing, which is outside of time and outside of here. And so in the end, it is a beautiful thing, really. It's what Narnia does too. It right? really does. You know, the, the scene in there, I was just, who was I talking to? Um, someone about uh, Reepicheep, but, oh, one of my buddies, dad on the boat, uh, but with Reepicheep, Reepicheep at the end of Voyage of the Dawn Trenor, when there's that scene, as, as, that made me cry as well, when Aslan says, my country was made for a person with your heart. And I'm like, oh. oh. Oh, wouldn't, don't you want to hear that? Even from another human, just like my home was made for someone of your heart or my heart was made for someone of your, right? Yes. That just brings up this, yes, that's beautiful. I love that. So we've talked a bit about the main themes and I'm struggling with somewhat how to word these because again, it's that balance act, not revealing too much, but we've, we've talked a little bit about logic versus imagination. I couldn't help but noticing, I'm curious if this was intentional that Lewis's journey seemed, or maybe I'll put this way, Meg's journey seemed to really resemble a lot of Lewis's journey. Was that pretty intentional or was that somewhat coincidental of going from this deep logic to a love of imagination somewhat by the end? It was partly intentional, but because I was doing the research while I was writing the book, meaning I chose the seven events I wanted to show Hmm. in Lewis's life that you can see in Narnia. There are many more, and it's not, I'm going to clarify, the seven events in his life that you can see in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I'm not trying to spread myself along seven chronicles of Narnia. And if you asked somebody else, maybe... David Downing or Andrew Lazo or Crystal Hurd or Diana Glyer or Max McLean, right? Like pick, or you pick seven events, right? If you pick, or David pick seven events in Lewis's life. I think everybody would pick seven different ones. Um, so these were the ones that struck a note with me and, and with the way I wanted to tell this story. So that meaning that yes, some of it was intentional, but a lot of it was serendipitous. Where while Meg is going on this character arc journey, Lewis is now, you know, in boarding school. Now he's with the tutor in the countryside. Now he's at war. Now he's, and so she's following these stories because he's telling them to her. And her life is in many ways mirroring what he's, what's happening to him through his life. And you did a fantastic job of having just talked to Dr. Poe. You know, he we we tried to summarize the key points in Lewis's life. And he really selected a lot of the ones that you have he? in here, like when there he is. was doing them. And so I was like, wow, this is fantastic. She's like summarizing the key things that he attempted to do on the podcast in real time. I'm like, this is incredible. So wow. you selected some very good ones. One. <laughs> I need to listen to that. I, you know, his was one of many, many books that, you know, those two shelves right there are nothing but either books by Lewis or about Lewis or joy. Um, so you could read all of those front to back and, and pick so many different pinpoints in his life. Yes. So I'm going to have to listen to that. That's interesting. I love it. So what I'll do here is a little bit of the just commentary and a few of the parts that I had liked, and you can say anything you would like around it. I'm kind of trying to tease the listeners of some beautiful things. And if there's something that we can't say, that's okay. But there was one quote that I really loved, by the way, grief is the price I paid for loving fiercely. Mm. Absolutely. When I got to that, well, first of all, it reminded me of A Grief Observed and the power of that book. And it was a very beautiful part of this story. And I just thought that was a very powerful line. That was, that was one of the ones I underlined. I underline a lot in books, but then there's like only a few times I ever use a star. 
and oh. it just reminded me of Brene Brown particularly and vulnerability oh, and, and love yeah. and vulnerability and how you can't you can't mute one emotion and expect to still have the contrasting like good emotion you can't mm. mute pain but then still have like joy Great joy yes yeah. and so i just thought that practically summarized that grief is the price i paid for loving fiercely oh thank you for noticing that line i think a lot about that opening line in a grief observed which is i never knew grief felt so much like fear which is the opening line of that book. I haven't read that book actually yet. Oh, wow. Um, So of course that book was written after Joy Davidman died. And this book, Once Upon a Wardrobe, takes place in 1950, a full decade before he ever wrote A Grief Observed or felt that kind of grief. Um, So it's not about that or about him even. But I wanted to show in that exactly what you said, which is this idea that We can temper loving or caring, whether it's about a book we're writing or a person or our children, that if we can at least temper it, then we won't care so much when it goes bad. Mm -hmm. And we miss out on so much if we do that. Well, and I love, I didn't even think about this when I brought this up, but you just triggered it. It's like a theme actually you do beautifully throughout this book because there's other parts where it's, Mm -hmm. he's hearing some of, George is hearing some of Lewis's bad parts of his life. And- And the mother's like, no, 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 no. Let's not, let's not tell him this. And he goes, no, because you, Don't can't, tell him. you can't have the good without the bad. And so that is actually like a sub theme, or maybe it's meant to be a main theme that's, that's running throughout there. I didn't actually realize yeah. that that would connect with that, but I loved that throughout it. And that's, that is so much a part of our life. We have to go through those. And that goes back to what we were talking about before, which is this idea that we can separate this either or black and white. And, and why can't we somehow come around to this and both? Mm-hmm. I like it. I always love the both ands. Yeah. Also loved, well, this was a scene that really made me cry, so I'm not going to say, but just how the story impacted the parents. I love that sub-narrative too. And just an example of, this is another example, this book Hopefully this is what you're taking away. This book has so much things that Lewis emphasizes of stories getting past your defenses. How it, it even them reading. The watchful the, dragon. The watchful dragon. Like this story got past my defenses as a reader. This story gets past. Wow. There's stories in this story that get past characters' defenses. And it's, yep. it's and we're seeing, and, and then it's also the stories in the stories describing Lewis's stories get past. You see Lewis's defenses getting past with these. And so there's just, it's the layers that you can unpack in this book were incredible. And so I really like that part too, by the way. That was the part that moved me to tears. Yes, I know exactly what scene you're talking about. <laughs> and, you know, I'm a parent and a grandparent. And there's this lioness quality to protecting our children mm-hmm. that it is very, very hard to sneak past that. And I wanted to do that for those parents. Hmm. Well, you did a good job with that. And then I liked, this reminded me of Becoming Mrs. Lewis, the the part where Meg realized that logic can't help in soul matters and kept her lock up. Is it, isn't it, I'm going to butcher this quote, but you'll probably know it right away, Mrs., uh, which Joy Dedman really says of, you can't take life with logic or something, too much logic. Oh, um, she says, um, of course, I would have known it with, if you hadn't butchered it. Um, <laughs> um, where's David when I you need know, him? Well, what, you know, exactly. Where's, where's Joy when I need her? But it's essentially, you know, what would happen if I should ever grow brave? What yep. would become of me if I should ever grow brave? Oh, it's that great cat from Oxford. She yes. had that quote tattooed on her. Yes. Yep. What would ever become of me if I should ever, if I should ever grow brave? Yes. She had it tattooed on her arm. Yes. I cried when she did that. That was amazing. <laughs> well, the final I thing. can't wait to one day meet her. She's, she's hilarious. I love following her journey on social media. I think I met her at um, the CS Lewis Symposium, if I'm correct. At that did point, at that point, I wasn't, David was really the one, I mean, he still does all the social media, but I believe we yeah. met her. Um, yeah, I think so. But she was really nice if I'm thinking of the right person. <laughs> Yeah, Hopefully. she's great. And then the, the the last part that I loved, and again, I don't want to reveal too much, but the the story between Megs and is it Padraig? 
Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. That was love it. Love it. Listeners, you'll, you'll personally me loving romance side and it's, it, there's so many just sub lessons in there as well of love and romance. That's just incredible. Incredible. And I also wanted, I wanted you to feel that way. So maybe I did want to go in with certain expectations, but also he was so much fun to write. He's my favorite character. Because I knew him. Like, I don't know him in real life, obviously, but he showed up on the page on that bridge when they meet, Uh right? The first time they had met before in a pub, but the first time you see them on the page is on the Maudlin Bridge right next to the college. And she's walking to Oxfordshire to hike up to Lewis's house and they run into each other and he bounded up on that bridge. And I was like, Oh, here we go. He's going to be so much fun. And he was so. I, I, I feel like you, I'm supposed to choose like Meg's or George, but I think I really loved Patrick potentially. Uh (laughs) I just. So a little inside baseball, this book meant so much to me that um, those are my three children's names. So my daughter is Megan. No way. My son is Patrick Thomas, but he goes by Thomas, but his first name is Patrick. And then my youngest son is George Rusk, but he goes by Rusk. So George and Megs and Patrick are my children's names. Oh, that is great. Yep. I love it. Yep. It's like a, it's like a subtle dedication to them. Yeah. Or yep. a not so and subtle. And then I and then it's dedicated to my granddaughter, who's just about to turn three. Oh, so. that's great. I, I, I realized in the beginning I was supposed to ask you, David had put that in there of your uh, what you selected for your grandma name. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> you had a link to some article, I guess. There was a conversation around that. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. I had written an essay for that's Parade Magazine on how we choose our grand, our grandparent name. And how it might be, it is probably the only time in our life that we get to choose what we're called, right? So our parents give us our name and then nicknames are given to us, cruel and otherwise, by other people. And sometimes when you're a grandparent, the kids will say, what do you want to be called? Which is what my daughter said. And I took a long time thinking about it. But in the end, I am Mamo which is the Gaelic name for grandma. Oh, yeah. That's fantastic. Mama. I was wondering what it was. I did actually skim the article uh, and I yeah. skimmed it enough where I read it, but I didn't actually read that you wrote it. <laughs> and so I yes, love hearing yes. that you actually wrote that. <laughs> yes, Mamo. Anyway, well, beautiful. that had nothing to do with the book, but. <laughs> no, well, honestly, that was the main thing. You know, that is really all the questions I had with the book. I wanted to leave with some of those commentary things, which I know listeners were a little vague, but that was somewhat the point as teasers. We're not going to give them away to you. So you hear us talking about some of these beautiful parts, but leaving you with an itch that you need to scratch. Uh You need to go get it. And so with that said, Vadi, where can both listeners learn more about you, but in general, also with this book, what are some things that they should know? Because this will be released, I think, in the next couple of weeks. It'll be before. Definitely. October 19th, it comes out. You can find it anywhere books are sold. I mean, everywhere from the Barnes and Noble to the Indies to Amazon to Bookshop to Hobby Lobby is going to have it. It's going to be everywhere. So, <laughs> is it pre-orderable get, already? Oh, please pre-order it. You okay. can pre-order it from any indie or from bookshop.org or Amazon. And there'll be loads of information on my website, which is just pattycallahan.com. There's a whole Once Upon a Wardrobe section where there will be a book club kit and resources and a video. And oh, here's something really fun. So if you pre-order the book and you go to my website, there is a place where you can sign up to go to a, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe book club live on Zoom. And it is with me, which is not that interesting, but it is with me <laughs> and and Douglas Gresham, who is Lewis's stepson, and Dr. David Downing. And the three of us are going to be talking about The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. We're going to be talking about origin stories. Douglas is going to tell us stories about living with Lewis and 
what it was like the first time when he met him and thought he would be a knight from Narnia. <laughs> and people are going to be able to ask live questions of both of them. And the way you can get a ticket to that is by pre-ordering the book and go on my website and you can sign up. I'm glad I didn't have you send me an actual hard copy because now I can go buy the pre-order and I can sign up for this. And then you can do I think yes. I would probably give you a ticket. I'm doing it the regular channel. I love it. <laughs> I want to be that person that's getting it, waiting for it to come into the mail. I really do love oh, hardcover books, to be honest. I'm a big fan of hardcover books. So do I. Obviously, you are. Nobody else can, but you can see the bookshelves behind me. They're <laughs> too deep, and you can't see where they're piled on the floor and the table. And yeah, I do too. Oh, well. Anything else before I wrap this up, Patty, that listeners should know? No, I just love talking to you about it. It went so fast. And I love that you saw things in this story that I hope people see when they read it. I love that you felt it. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Well, thank you for writing it. And I wish I could have. Partly, it probably went a little bit fast. It's very unique, listeners. Um, having a conversation on a book that's not out yet. Because like with the yes. Becoming Mrs. Lewis, I could honestly go really in depth to my favorite parts because, well, if they're spoilers, they all had a chance to buy it ahead of time. They could have read this before. Yeah. Um, but like in this case, you do have to be really delicate of what you say because you don't want to give away. I want, I want listeners, I want you guys to experience the way I got to experience it, which was like I mentioned in the beginning and alluded to, I had no idea actually what to expect. I saw the title. I yeah, had, you didn't even know what it was about. No, I, I didn't even know I was going to be able to read this. That was kind of a funny thing when I, was, when I was emailing Patty a week ago before reviewing this. I was like, are there any like excerpts or things? Because I have some general questions and stuff. She goes, I can send you a copy you can read ahead of time. I'm like, oh, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> I have access to such things. <laughs> so... Oh, thank you, Matt. This was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Well, thank you so much for being here. And thank you for so much for giving your time. Listeners, October 19th, go order it now. Pre-order it. We'll probably put a link in the show notes to both her website and the Amazon author page where you can just click and pre-order it. And next week, guys, where we sign off will be our 100th episode this season in our season finale. So please join us then when we'll be going further up. And further in. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>